Father, you are worthy of praise for sending your Son to die on behalf of the weak, on behalf of the ungodly, on behalf of your enemies. We thank you for the supreme manifestation of love your enemies that we see in the cross of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we uh, turn to your word, which is ultimately all about Jesus, we ask your help. We pray that you would come by your spirit and uh, enable us, enable our hearts and minds to listen well. Give us ears to hear. And Father, that we would leave this place later not just being intellectually tickled, but changed, transformed because of your spirit. These things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Master Master and Savior and Friend. Amen. Back in my seminary days, I had a professor who was fond of saying that the Bible is a warts and all book. A warts and all book. And what he meant by that is that the Bible does not shy away from giving us stories and giving us vignettes that reveal the nasty nature of fallen human beings. We have several stories in the Bible that put a mirror up to our fallen hearts that show us in sordid detail what fallen human beings are capable of. These are stories that shout to us our need to be rescued and renewed by the power of God. For one thing, in the Bible, we have a whole catalog of murders. Cain murders Abel. Cain's descendant, Lamech, boasts out loud to his wives about murdering a man. Moses murders an Egyptian man. Ehud assassinates King Eglon. And the book of Judges presents that particular murder in extremely graphic detail. Jael murders Sisera, also in very brutal fashion. The Levite's concubine in Judges 19 is murdered in an absolutely heinous way. Abner murders Asahel, and then soon after that, Joab murders Abner. uh, Joab also murders Absalom, uh, but not before Absalom murders Amnon. David and Joab conspire to murder Uriah. Joab later murders another person named Amasa. Ishbosheth is murdered by two of his own men. Jezebel has Naboth murdered. Sennacherib, even as he was busy worshiping his Assyrian god, was murdered by his own sons. Joash was murdered on his bed by his servant. 
Acts 9 verse 1 says that Saul, in the days before he was converted to Jesus Christ, was breathing threats and murder against the church of Jesus Christ. And then, in Acts chapter 7 verse 52, just before the deacon Stephen is himself murdered, he calls the death of Jesus a murder. The religious officials and the Roman officials in and around Jerusalem had conspired together to murder Jesus. Again, friends, the the Bible unabashedly presents to us the grim side of humanity operating in its fallenness. And the Bible's presentation fits perfectly with what's going on in our day. It's 2019. Uh, We are 19, almost 20 years into the 21st century now. And we have just recently come through the bloodiest hundred years in all of human history. By one estimate, the deaths of 175 million human beings in the 20th century can be traced to just four individuals by the names of Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. That's the entire population of Canada 4.6 times over, killed under the dictatorial leadership of just four individuals. Here at home in the year 2018, there were 651 homicides reported in Canada, 32 of which happened here in Montreal. And in 2017 there were over 94,000 abortions reported across Canada. In a book written in 2009, Albert Moeller provided a statistic about American youth, but I strongly suspect that Canadian youth are not much different. The statistic is that by the time the average youth has reached the age of 18, that child has witnessed more than 80,000 murders via video games, TV, and movies. Friends, over every age, fallen human beings have consistently found ways to cheapen human life. Even this past Monday, in the very parking lot that is connected to the gym where my two eldest children do their workouts, a man was gunned down and murdered uh, in the early morning. And now the police are warning that there is likely to be more violence coming because of that mafia murder. Another man was shot dead in Montreal North on Thursday. And on Tuesday in Tetraville, of course, we had that most horrific situation where a man murdered his two children before committing suicide. This morning we are considering the sixth word of the ten words, which is found in Exodus 20, verse 13. God says to his human creatures, you shall not murder. 
Now, if this morning, I'm not sure which uh, version of Scripture you have, but if you have in front of you the King James Version of the Bible, you will notice that instead of the word murder, you have the word kill. Thou shalt not kill. Now, there's been some debate over the years as to how to best translate the verb from the original Hebrew into English. Should we translate the verb as the English kill or as the English murder? Translators look at the original Hebrew verb here and they notice, listen, they notice that the Hebrew verb actually describes an action that is slightly broader than murder, but at the same time it describes an action that is much more limited than kill. So how best to translate the verb? English doesn't have a word that totally captures the meaning of the Hebrew. So let's consider this a little. What we notice over in Numbers chapter 35 is that this same Hebrew word, and it's the word uh, ratzach, it describes both intentional homicide or murder, but it also describes accidental or unforeseen, the unforeseen killing of another human being, what we might call manslaughter. So again, in Numbers 35, the same word that is used in the Sixth Commandment describes both premeditated murder and also the undesigned or unintended killing of another person. Murder and manslaughter. However, and I think this is key, In the sixth word, in the sixth commandment, we notice that we have the language of prohibition, right? Exodus 20, verse 13, is a prohibitive statement. It is a do not statement. Do not murder, or you shall not murder, or never murder. Prohibition. Now, follow with me. Since you can't prohibit accidental or unintentional killing. In other words, since a statement like, you shall not unintendedly or accidentally kill someone, since since that statement is a statement that would not make great sense, we can deduce that the commandment in Exodus 20, verse 13, is not referring to unintentional killing or to manslaughter. Rather, the sixth word of the ten words is specifically prohibiting intentional homicide or murder, so that the translation murder is probably the best English translation after all. You shall not Murder, And, of course, this is how the English Standard Version and the New International Version and several other English Bibles have translated it. Murder is the best translation here. But now, we need to further define what the sixth word is and is not addressing. In the Hebrew Bible, 
There are four or five other words, aside from the word that we have in the sixth commandment, four or five other words that are used to describe killing in various contexts. For example, killing in the context of war. Killing in the context of animals being butchered. Or killing in the context of self-defense. The word that we have in the sixth commandment is never found in any of those contexts. The word is never used in the Hebrew Bible to describe killing in war, killing in self-defense, slaughtering animals, or suicide. So that we can argue from that, that the sixth commandment with the use of this specific word that we translate as murder is talking specifically about murder. You shall not murder is referring specifically to culpable, premeditated, human-to-human homicide. It's referring to a human being who illicitly kills another human being or human beings with premeditation. Perhaps a helpful way to put it would be to say that the word murder in in the sixth word of the ten words is referring to a human being, listen, a human being who intentionally kills another human being or human beings in unauthorized fashion. Now, wait a minute. What do I mean by using that word unauthorized? Are there instances, pastor, when killing another human being or human beings is authorized? And the answer is yes. But listen very carefully, friends. The only one anywhere, at any time, who is allowed to give such an authorization is God. And what we see in Scripture is that God sometimes does authorize the killing of human beings. Now, here is a test of our theological courage. It will help us, I think, to just briefly consider the nature of God's authority. So let's talk about the kind of authority that God has. We must bear firmly in mind that God does not need to seek permission or seek advice on any matter whatsoever from us, or from any other created being, because God is the highest authority on every single matter. There is no one above God. As creator of the universe, God reserves the right, we have to understand, to govern and to interpret his universe in whichever way he chooses. And God's commands, God's plans, God's purposes, God's ways are not 
ultimately subject to human evaluation. God reserves the right to steer the entire course of history in whatever way He likes. He reserves the right to command to His creatures what they ought to do and what they ought not do. God's authority, you see, is in another league altogether from any human authority. So that, I want you to listen well here, if God so chooses, God can authorize the killing of his human creatures at certain times. Never arbitrarily, but always in the interest of his greater plans and purposes. By sharp contrast, and I want you to listen well, by sharp contrast to God, human beings may never authorize themselves to kill other human beings. But God being the divine authority over all things, he alone, he alone can authorize the killing of human beings if he so chooses. And sometimes God does. For example, in Genesis 9, verse 5 and 6, you can turn there if you have a Bible. In Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6, God authorizes the killing of the human being who murders another human being. For ancient Israel, God authorizes capital punishment there. Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6. And God's authorization of death for the murderer gets repeated again in Numbers 35, verses 31 through 33, and in Leviticus 24, verses 17 and 21. In fact, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God authorized or God, God sanctioned the death penalty, not just for murder, but for a whole range of things. Uh, as some examples, he authorizes the death penalty Uh, In cases of adultery, incest, bestiality, sodomy, kidnapping, human sacrifice, false prophecy, blasphemy, and also for striking or cursing one's parents, among other things. God also sanctioned, or he authorized, the killing of human beings in certain situations of war. Just as one example here, uh, we could go to Deuteronomy 20, uh, verses 10 through 13, where God authorizes the killing of all males in a city in a time of war, if that city refused to respond appropriately to terms of peace. God also authorized the killing of another human being in certain circumstances of self-defense. 
At the beginning of Exodus chapter 22, we have that. But in that text, we need to notice, we also have definite limits placed on the parameters of killing in self-defense. It could only be done in very specific circumstances. But again, let's not miss the greater point in all of this. The point we've been laboring to make here, and I hope you've heard this, is that only God can authorize the killing of human beings if he so chooses, because God is the only one who has that kind of authority. As Mark Rooker puts it, quote, God alone has the right to terminate life. Human beings are never to kill other human beings on their own authority, close quote. And this is what the sixth word of the ten words is telling us. Notice the first word of the sixth word. You, that's me and that's you, and every other human being, you shall not murder. None of us are ever permitted to kill another human being on our own authority. Human life belongs to who? To God. God determines what is done with human life, not us. We are not permitted to euthanize people. We are not permitted to abort people. We are not permitted to strangle or shoot or smother or club or stab or poison or beat another person or persons to death. Life belongs to God. The only one who can authorize human life is God, and the only one who can authorize human death is God. As John Frame summarizes it for us, he says what the Sixth Commandment basically says is that life and death are God's business. He is Lord of life and death, and we may not take life without his authorization. Close quote. Friends, to take take the life of another person as we are operating under our own authority, think about this, it's not only to break the sixth commandment, but also to break the second commandment. To murder is to commit an act of idolatry because it is to put ourselves in the place of God who alone has authority to give and take life. Now, human life, among all the other life that exists. Now, I heard a story this week about some lawyers in New York who are trying in the courts to grant human rights to an elephant. I'll just let that sit with you for a minute. Human life, among all the other life that exists, is particularly glorious because human beings alone are made in the image of God. An elephant is not. Neither is a giant sequoia or a bobcat. 
Human beings alone are made in the image of God. To murder another person is not simply a brutal human-to-human interaction, which it is, but it's not just that. To murder another person is to attack and terminate the very image of God. It is to subtract God's glory from the world, and that amounts, friends, to an attack on God himself. As Mark Rooker has put it, the sin of murder is not only against the victim and his family, but against God, whose image the victim bears. So then, to prohibit murder in a society, obviously that's good for society, right? When we prohibit murder in a society, it's good for society. But more than that, higher than that, to prohibit murder is a recognition of the high value of human beings. Human beings are bearers of God's image. In Genesis 9-6, the passage we quoted earlier, it's the destruction of the image of God by murder that causes God to authorize the death of the murderer. You shall not murder. To murder a person who has just been conceived or to murder a child, or to murder a youth, or to murder an adult, or to murder a senior, all murder is prohibited by the Sixth Commandment. No human being who is made in God's image is ever permitted to murder another human being who is made in God's image. Now, interestingly enough, what we see in the Scriptures is that the sixth word applies also in cases of negligence. Very interesting. To be negligent and then to cause someone's death by my negligence, that could cost me my own life. And we see this especially in Exodus 21, where if you owned an ox that was known to habitually gore people with its horns, and you failed to restrain that ox and then it gored somebody, as the owner, you were then liable for murder, and you were to be put to death along with the ox. So there is an application of the sixth word that concerns ensuring the safety of others. It's not simply addressing cases where a person proactively attacks somebody else to murder them. It's also about ensuring the safety and ensuring the well-being of other human beings. The sixth word brings carelessness under its microscope. John Calvin once wrote the following as he meditated on the sixth commandment. Calvin said this, and I think it's worth hearing. He said, each man ought to concern himself with the safety of all. If we find anything of use to us in saving our neighbors' lives, we are faithfully to employ it. If there is anything that makes for their peace, we are to see to it. If there is anything harmful, we are to ward it off. If you have a pit bull, keep it in its cage. If they are in any danger, he says, we are to lend a helping hand. 
So there we can see that the application of the sixth word broadens out, doesn't it? It deepens. And it deepens even further courtesy of Jesus. When Jesus interprets and teaches the sixth word in Matthew chapter 5, watch what he does. Now, if we were here at Snowden uh, this past January the 20th, it's a long time ago, I know, but if you were here on that Sunday, you heard Charles preach an excellent sermon on Matthew 5:21 through 26. That was during our sermon series uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. I really encourage you, as I did this week, to go online to our church website and listen to that sermon that Charles preached, because I, th- I think it's an excellent word. But let's refresh our memories just a little bit here concerning uh, this section of Matthew 5. So on the screen, if you look at the verses, in Matthew 5.21, Jesus quotes the sixth word, right? Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, Exodus 20, verse 13, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So Jesus there quotes the sixth commandment, but then what Jesus does in verse 22 is he takes us from the external performance of murder to the deeper inner reality of anger that works inside of a person and births the external action of murder. He says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, in Aramaic, racha, you fool, you idiot, you empty head, that person will be liable, says Jesus, to the hell of fire. Jesus shows us here that the sixth commandment has to do not simply with the external action of murdering another human being, but with the deeper reality, friends, of abiding anger and hatred that lurks in fallen human hearts. And there in verse 22, we have to notice that. Jesus talks there about how the person who insults somebody the person who verbally denigrates another image bearer of God is liable to the council and to the hell of fire. Now, I want to ask you this question. Who among us is innocent in these matters? Which one of us here today can possibly say, oh, I've never said or I've never thought what an idiot as I've been on the 15 or the 40 or the 20, driving along looking at other image bearers of God. I like your laughter. (laughs) It's fair to say, isn't it, that there's no one anywhere who's exempt from the anger and the internal feelings of hatred that Jesus talks about in this passage. The thing with us is... 99.9999999% of the time, or perhaps even higher, 
Our anger is not the pure, righteous anger that Jesus had on occasion. Our anger is most normally less than righteous. Would you agree? Each of us knows very well about the hostile, hateful anger that Jesus describes that lurks in our own hearts. And so by Jesus' authoritative, we talked about authority before, by his authoritative interpretation, and he does have authority, divine authority, by his authoritative interpretation, the sixth commandment certainly does apply to us, even if we have never murdered anybody, if we never planned to murder anybody, although none of us know what we might be capable of in certain circumstances, But even if we've never murdered anybody or never planned to murder anybody, it applies to us. Jesus tells us that the sixth commandment is not simply about stabbing or shooting somebody. It's about attitudes and words also. It's about the condition of our heart. If we are angry with another, if we are raging inside about somebody, or if we verbally insult or denigrate another person, we are guilty of violating the sixth word. Each and every one of us we need to see and understand and grasp and own. Each and every one of us has the roots of murder in us. We have these things called anger and hatred. Isn't it telling That the Apostle John in 1 John 3.15 can say, listen to what he says, everyone who hates his brother is a what? Is a murderer. Wow. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Oh, how you and I need to be saved from our murderous hearts. The sixth word of the ten words points us, doesn't it, to our need of a Savior. Amen? It points us to the fact that we need Jesus Christ to free us from our sin and to free us also from the clutches of the One who was a murderer from the beginning, from Satan, who Ephesians 2.2 says, we follow in the days before we trust Christ. We need to be saved from Satan and from our own sin. Well, Jesus the Savior is our hero at Snowden Baptist Church. If you're visiting us for the first time, I want to say that loud and clear. The hero around here is Jesus Christ. You see, unlike David, unlike Moses, unlike the Apostle Paul, Jesus never murdered anyone. David did, Moses did, Paul did in the days when he was Saul. Jesus himself was murdered, But the thing we notice is that even in the very moment when Jesus was being murdered, Jesus sought the good of his murderers. Just after his murderers had driven the spikes through his wrists and through his feet, Jesus amazes us 
by praying earnestly for the forgiveness of his murderers. Just think about that. These guys just drove cold metal spikes through his wrists, through his uh, feet. They touched the nerves. The pain would have been unreal. And Jesus is seeking their good. He's seeking their good. He prays in that moment, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is Jesus. Jesus loved the people who hated him. Jesus died for the people who hated him. Romans 5 says that Jesus died in the place of weak, ungodly sinners and enemies like you and I, who in the divine tribunal, all of us deserve to die for our transgressions, our breaking of the Ten Commandments. We deserve to die the death that Jesus dies. But he dies in our place so that we would not have to face God's wrath for our unrighteous anger and for our murderous attitudes and for the host of the other sins against God that we all commit because we are sinners. What a Savior is Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, friend, if you know Him. I want to ask you if you have surrendered your life to the crucified and risen Jesus Christ and have you trusted Him as Lord and as Savior. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Straight from Scripture. And for those of us whom God has redeemed by the blood of his Son, my prayer is that the Spirit would fill us this week with power, with fresh power, to live out the parameters of the sixth word. To be doers of the sixth word. May we be, for example, reconciled to a brother or sister where there is fracture in the relationship. I've known people in church sanctuaries that sit on opposite sides for years because they can't get along. And they come to church every Sunday to worship. And they have not reconciled with their brother or sister. Make it right by the word of Jesus. And may we not let the sun go down on our anger. I know I've been guilty of doing that. May we confess to God our inhumanity in terms of our hostile and violent attitudes and violent words, and may we ask for his forgiveness and for his help. May we forgive those who harmed us. And as Daryl Johnson has said, I'll leave you with this. I love this sentence of his. He says, in summary, may we bring our inner violence to the crucified. May we bring our inner violence to the crucified. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I confess to you that as I read the sixth word early last week, I was tempted to read it at arm's length. 
to distance myself from it, to be like a Pharisee who says, I've kept this command from my youth up. Then I went to Matthew 5 and I recognized that I am a violator of the sixth word along with all the other nine words and how much I need a savior. And I pray, Lord, if there's someone here today who has seen by and through your word that they are helpless and hopeless on their own steam to be right with you, that they would reach out to you, Jesus, Lord and Savior, crucified and risen one, trusting in you and your work, and thereby that they would be right with God. Father, help us this week with our anger. Help us, Lord, with the hatred, the the bitter roots that maybe are still uh, down deep in our hearts. And I pray your transforming power and your transforming grace for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.